This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. George Will's column is syndicated in more than 450 newspapers, and he holds down Newsweek's back page column. He also holds down a chair on the ABC News program this week. Will visited the Cato Institute to discuss his new book, One Man's America, The Pleasures and Provocations of Our Singular Nation. The full event audio is available for download at Cato.org. It is fair to say that the welfare state today exists to subsidize two things that did not exist in 1935. One is protracted retirement, and the other is competent medicine. In 1935, retirement as we think of it, a prolonged period of subsidized leisure after work, simply was a luxury of a tiny, uh, economically and biologically, physiologically blessed people in the country. The span of retirement in the 20th century increased from two years to almost 20 years. We simply have no, didn't anticipate any of this happening. And with regard to competent medicine, there was virtually no medicine in 1935. In 1924, Calvin Coolidge, the sainted Coolidge, the last president with whom I fully agreed, was, <laughs> was living in the White House with access to the best medicine the country had to offer. His 16-year-old son played tennis without socks. He got a blister, it got infected, and he died. There was very little medicine could do at that point. It is estimated roughly again, but plausibly, that at least a quarter of the medical treatments now in use, diagnostic, therapeutic, and pharmacological, did not exist in 1965 when Medicare was enacted. We have put in place, as a matter of right and entitlement, we have attached the most rapidly growing portion of the population, the elderly, to the most dynamic sector of American society, the scientifically intensive healthcare industry, as a matter of entitlement, of right. And we're going to pay a very steep price for this. Uh, we also are poised to see in uh, the coming year or two the most astonishing uh, tax increase in American history uh, imposed upon the country automatically by the terms of the Bush tax cut for budgetary and bookkeeping reasons uh, nearly a decade ago. Will Rogers famously said that the difference between death and taxes is that death does not get worse every time Congress meets. <laughs> taxes will get very much worse without Congress doing anything under this, this dispensation. And indeed, you know, it used to be, you could say with some comfort that you know, to listen to politics, you have to listen with a third ear to hear what is not said. And it was encouraging to say that no one was actually calling for the repeal of the emblematic achievement of the 1980s, the Reagan tax cuts, when, going back to when we had 70% marginal tax rates. Well, if you take Mr. Obama's proposals to revert to 39.5 or whatever it is, top marginal rate, and add in increases in the Social Security and the Medicare taxes, and then add in the average top rate in the states, which is 6.5%, you're getting close to 60% marginal tax rates for the top income earners in the United States, who it is politically incorrect but correct to note are the most creative class in the country when it comes to job creation and all the rest. Add to this stew of coming problems that are utterly predictable the fact that uh, we are now have a, a dangerous uh, because confused emphasis on widening inequality of income in the United States, 
we are set up for some confusing responses to uh, problems, some real and some not. Uh, there is indeed a widening inequality in income in the United States. And the cure for it, as far as I can tell, is for Americans to drop out of school sooner. Two centuries ago, the great source of wealth in the Western world was land. A century ago, the great source of wealth was fixed capital. Think of Andrew Carnegie's steel mills or Cornelius Vanderbilt's New York Central Railroad. Today, the great source of wealth is human capital, mind, learning capacity to handle information. The slogan is a good one, that you earn what you learn. What we are seeing from the market is a widening, emphatic return on the yield to education. The market is saying at the top of its considerable lungs, stay in school. The problem, of course, is, and I hate to break this news bulletin here today, that half of America's children are below average intelligence. <laughs> which uh, that's very good. You, you did you did the arithmetic. You know, if you if you say that on a college campus, they boo you. <laughs> they boo arithmetic. It's quite astonishing. Um, we are set up for. I say in the this is the Hayek room, right? Yes. Well, uh, we are set up for what Hayek called the fatal conceit. That is, the belief that government can know and plan the unfolding future, and should do so. That is a recipe for what my old and dearest friend Pat Moynihan used to call iatrogenic social problems. In medicine, an iatrogenic problem is a disease or problem caused by medicine. In social life, an iatrogenic social problem is a problem caused by a government attempt to solve a problem. The good news is that uh, while all these uh, indicators are for a, a recrudescence of misplaced government confidence, uh, that contains the seeds of its own correction. Uh, do remember the following. Between 1938 and 1964, there was no liberal legislating majority in this town. 1938, the country responded against Roosevelt and his court packing plan and brought the New Deal to heel. Between that and the anti-Goldwater landslide, conservative Southern Democrats and Republicans kept the government on a more or less even keel. For two years after the Goldwater lost 44 states, uh, liberalism had its way. And two years, four years later, in 1968, Republicans began the process of winning seven of the next 10 presidential elections. The market in politics as well as in uh, uh, economics does seem to work, and there does seem to be a self-correcting mechanism. Uh, I do think the American people broadly remain uh, wise, broadly remain convinced that a benevolent government is not always a benefactor, broadly remain convinced that capitalism does not just make us better off, it makes us in some senses better. They are broadly convinced that when Jack Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, one sensible response is that one thing you can do for your country is to reserve a spacious portion of your own life for which you, not your country, uh, is, is, are responsible for. I think most Americans still understand what Milton Friedman meant when he said, take any three letters from the alphabet, doesn't matter which ones, pick them at random. Put them in any order you want, it doesn't matter. You will have an acronym designating a federal agency we can do without. 
I think most Americans still understand what Robert Frost meant when he said, I do not want to live in a homogenized society. I want the cream to rise. And most of all, I think they understand what Ronald Reagan meant when he said, I do not want to go back to the past. I want to go back to the past way of facing the future. It is my understanding of the purpose of the Cato Institute to do precisely that. And I thank them for having me here today to talk about my book. And I'm sick to death of the sound of my own voice. And I welcome your questions. Thank you very much. George Will is a nationally syndicated columnist and author of the new book, One Man's America, The Pleasures and Provocations of Our Singular Nation. He spoke at the Cato Institute July 24, 2008. You can download the full event at our website, cato.org.